identified. Podcast. You ready to go? Yeah. All right. Awesome. Hello and welcome to Mystified, a podcast where we bring you strange and unusual stories. My name is Tasha. This is Steven. And today we've got an awesome one for you. Um, I brought a story today and it is probably one of my favorite murder stories because it's just freaking awesome. And I'm super, super excited to share it with you. Um, So here we go. All right. Are you ready? Let's do it. Are you ready for this story? Yes. We needed more enthusiasm with that. Well. Okay. Are you sure this time? Let's go. Okay. So late at night on December 10th, 1986, emergency services received a call about a break-in at the home of Susan Cabot. Firefighters and paramedics arrived within four minutes and were met by a stoic boy standing on the porch of the rundown mansion in Encino, California. Once entering the house, they discovered a horrific scene, and the story they would hear that night was something straight out of a bad B-movie. However, the truth in this case turned out to be stranger than fiction. This is the murder of the Wasp Woman. Boom, boom, boom. I love that. Okay. The story begins July 9th, 1927 in Boston, Massachusetts, with the birth of Harriet Pearl Shapiro. Her childhood is one of loneliness and chaos due to a terrible home life. When she was a young child, no one exactly is sure of the age. Her mother was institutionalized and her father ran off, leaving Harriet to bounce around a series of foster homes. She ended up attending high school in Manhattan, where she discovered a love for the stage after joining the drama club. After leaving high school, she would illustrate children's books during the day and sing at Manhattan's Village Barn at night. Young Harriet had big dreams of being a star of the stage. In 1944, at the age of 17, she married her first husband, Martin Slacker, and shortly after changed her name to Susan Cabot. In 1947, Susan gets a bit part in the movie Kiss of Death. She also begins to work on a New York-based television show over the next couple years. One night, while singing in Manhattan's Village Barn, Susan is spotted by a Hollywood agent, Maxwell Arno. He sets her up with a co-starring role in the Columbia picture on the Isle of Samoa. How you say it? How you say Samoa correctly? Uh, I think you got it. Did I say it? Samoa? Yeah. Okay. Isle of Samoa. There you go. (laughs) She is signed with Columbia, but that does not last, and she leaves to work with Universal. Starting in 1951, she is making quite a few films a year. All her roles are Westerns or Arabian Night type movies. You said Westerns. Westerns? Westerns. Westerns. You said Westerns. What? Westerns. Westerns. Why can I not say that word? Westerns. There you go. Okay. She was in Westerns and Arabian Night type films. She has curly chestnut hair and lovely brown eyes and is typecast in parts that she calls dark and exotic little things. She becomes the queen of Western. Did I say it right? Nope. Damn it. Western. There you go. Western. That does not roll off the tongue for me. Western B movies and is quoted as saying, I'm either in jungles or gypsy wagons. I don't see why. My coloring is exactly like Elizabeth Taylor's. Do they put her in charongs? No. Well, she was Elizabeth Taylor, so that's probably why. Yeah, but, I mean, Susan Cabot does look a lot 
like a young Elizabeth Taylor. They have that same like exotic look to them, but yeah, but Elizabeth Taylor also had a lot more clout. True, and she had like that persona almost like she's very charismatic yeah it was pretty hard back then to break out of the b movie circuit if that's what you got in that's pretty much what you stayed in yeah gypsies for life yeah totally um so in 1951 she divorces slacker and is then linked to a few producers but she tends to have a penchant for dating comedians her dream is to star in a moving glove story where she gets to sing in English. Sadly, this is never an option for her. And in 1955, she gets out of her acting contract with Universal and moves to New York. Susan returns to the stage in A Stone for Danny Fisher. She has a successful stage career, but is lured back to the silver screen by director Roger Corman. And she stars in The Wasp Woman, her final film. I actually really love The Wasp Woman. It's a sci-fi horror movie about this woman, Janice Starlin, who runs a cosmetic company, and she is obsessed with staying young and beautiful. She's also the face of the company, and due to decrease in sales, the board wants to bring in like a more beautiful, younger um, model to be the spokesperson. Uh Janice is not cool with this. So she starts looking for like a miracle cream and she starts taking this new beauty serum that's made from the queen wasp. Um, it's an experimental treatment and it works. Janice does look younger, more radiant. However, there are horrific side effects. She turns into a deranged wasp monster and kills a lot of people. So, um, it is by far Susan's best work, though. Well, yeah, it's a Roger Corman movie. Well, yeah, so. I mean, and it's like one of his first films, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. But um, if you're into sci-fi movies, you should totally watch that one. So the same year, 1959, Susan is reported to be involved with the new king of Jordan, King Hassan. He is 24 and she is 31 at the time. Both deny the rumors, but there is speculation in the tabloids, and it is thought to be true when Susan is spotted driving a Mercedes that is said to be a gift from the king because of this, like, personalized license plate. It's like a bunch of zeros and a Z. I don't know what that represents. It's but a weird connection. But whatever. So, however... In some recently declassified CIA documents about the assassination of JFK, there are memos that confirm that not only did Susan and King Kusan have an affair, but that the CIA had a hand in setting the couple up. The government at the time was trying to gain the new king's favor to win him over as an ally in the Middle East. He had some requests prior to coming to America, one of them being he wanted to be around some lovely ladies. So the government agreed to provide female companionship. A so, B-movie actress. That's <laughs> Well, there was more than one. Hold on. There was more than one. So this led to the CIA reaching out to a private investigator and former FBI agent Robert Mayhew. I think that's how you say it. M-A-H-E-U. Mayhew? Sounds right. Um, Mayhew contacted a fixer, which then led to the eccentric billionaire pilot, Howard Hughes. Of course it did. Of course it did. Everything came back to Howard Hughes. Hughes hosted a party at one of his friend's uh, friend's houses, because he had many. 
um, for the new king. And Susan Cabot was one of the women invited to the party for Hussein to mingle with. Um, However, in one of the memos that was released, it is said that she was told to go to bed with him. So I don't know if all the women that were invited were told to go to the bed with the king, but it's listed in this memo that she was. Was there an ad for that? Like, why would you agree to that? No, it's very discreet. So it was like, I guess when Howard Hughes asks you to do something, you do it. You're like, okay, but... I mean, it's Hollywood, so sex is... But she still wasn't... She wasn't a Hollywood starlet. She but was, she wanted to be a Hollywood starlet. Yeah. So that's that's the thing. Is she was always hopeful for that, like, A-list movie baby. So if Howard Hughes is like, hey, come hang out with this king, you know, you're, you're going to try to do it. To... Plus, the CIA is involved. Do you really tell the CIA no in the 50s? Like, I don't know. Bizarre. Yeah. Anyways, as luck would have it, Susan found the king charming and he was smitten with her. Yeah, I mean, he's 10 years younger than she is. Of course, she found him charming. Um, he's also a king. We can't forget that's that. That's true. And he's pretty good looking. Like, he's not, he didn't age so well. But so when he was in his 20s. Done worse. Yeah, like, he, he was cute. So, a few days later, King Hassan asked the CIA to arrange a place. Um, to stay for him and his new girlfriend in New York. So he was all about moving fast. They continued to meet in private, but no matter how hard you try, you cannot keep things secret for long. Details began to leak to the media about their relationship. It was rumored that once the king found out Cabot's family was Jewish, because he found out her original name, he took issue with this and ended the relationship due to him being Muslim. I don't know. This is all just tabloid, you know, junk. The memos don't state why they broke up or when they broke up. So no one knows for sure how long they stayed together. But in 1964, Susan gave birth to her son, Timothy, and refused to disclose who the father was. I bet you can't guess who everyone was speculating (laughs) the father was. Right. It wasn't Howard Hughes. Yeah. By the way. Okay. Um, While that was wildly, um, a wildly popular topic in the tabloids, the gossip rags were more interested in her son because Timothy was born with dwarfism. By the time he was a toddler, people could tell something was wrong with Susan's son. So not only is it, she probably had a kid with this king, but he's also a dwarf. Do you really want to say something was wrong with? Well, that's how they worded it. Like, that's what the articles were saying was like, there's something wrong with Susan Cabot's son. Like, that's, I'm not saying Uh, there was something wrong with him. That was the vernacular at the time. Yes. That was like, something's not right about that boy. Like, that's kind of how he's saying it. They are saying it, not me. I am reiterating a story to you. She remarried in 1968, and her son took his new father's last name. They raised Timothy together until their divorce in 1981. I did not put his name in here. His name is something Roland. Shit. Susan's last television show credit was in 1970. After that, she withdrew to her mansion on the hill, taking her son with her. Due to her declining mental health, she would only have contact with only a few people, such as her therapist and tutors for Timothy. 
Other than that, she shut out the public until the tragic night in 1986. So now we're back to that fateful night on December 10th. When rescuers show up, they see what they believe to be a young teenage boy standing by the front door. He calmly tells them that there was a burglar in the house and that he has been attacked. He also states that his mother is in her bedroom and he believes that she is also injured, but he has not gone in to check on her. When the paramedics step inside, they are shocked by the amount of newspapers and magazines piled high in makeshift towers. Rotting food, clutter, and garbage bags are everywhere. It's always the same. It's with these always people. the same. The outside of the house was run down due to age and lack of upkeep, but the inside of the home was a nightmarish hoarding scene. Furniture was overturned and drawers were opened, their contents littering the already covered floor. The house was deathly still and quiet, except for insistent barking and growling coming from the four Nikita dogs locked in the room down the hall. Paramedics found Susan's body in her bed. She was wearing a purple V-neck nightgown that was soaked in blood. As they take the scene in around them, they notice that there is blood everywhere. It is all over the floor. It is puddling in the bed. There are large sprays on the mirror near her bed, as well as splatters on the wall and the ceiling. This is a mansion. Mm -hmm. The ceiling's like, what, 10 foot? Arterial spray goes a long way. I mean, that's... That's a lot. That's a lot of blood. The attacker had taken a piece of bed linen and placed it over her face before bludgeoning her to death. Um, Her face was completely unrecognizable and there was brain matter and skull bits attached to the linen um, that's covering her once face that's not there anymore. Yowza. By this time, the police have arrived on the scene and they are taking Timothy's statement. To their shock, they realize that they are not speaking to a 13 or 14-year-old kid, but a 22-year-old man at only 5'4 and 130 pounds with an angelic baby face. Their words, not mine. Um, It's hard to see Timothy as anything other than a a child. Like he's He looks like a little kid. He tells police he went to bed at around 9.30 p.m. and woke up at 10 p.m. when he got hungry and wanted a snack. He went to the kitchen where he was attacked by a tall Latin man with curly hair that was dressed like a Japanese ninja warrior. I see. Take all that in. Take your time. Take all that in. Here's the next part. Timothy was a martial artist, but despite his training and best efforts, he was not able to defeat this masked intruder. In their battle, he was stabbed in the arm and knocked unconscious. Wow. So they were kung fu fighting in his kitchen. Okay. Anyway, police searched the house for any signs of a break-in and to make sure that the suspect is still not on the premises. The only room that was not searched was Timothy's because the dogs would not let anyone in. When they do open the door and try to scan the best that they can, they deem it too dangerous without the help of animal control, and it will be hours before they are able to arrive on the scene. However, the police were able to see weight training equipment and barbells on the floor. On the wall was a picture of Timothy's idol, Bruce Lee. 
During the next few hours, Timothy's story becomes increasingly inconsistent. Imagine that. Well, yeah. It's hard to keep lies straight. The detective's doubts increase after paramedics examine Timothy's injuries that are like flesh wounds. There's like a little laceration on his head and then a scratch on his arm. So he didn't even he have... He was not stabbed. And he, he did he not... have the gall to even make it He couldn't it even fake. stab himself yeah. to fake that. Yeah. Okay. They are not consistent with the facts that Timothy claimed happened, right? So Timothy is taken down to the station where he is questioned again for another three hours. When asked about his mother, he states they are very close. His mother and him talk about everything, including intimate sexual matters. I see. Creepy. After the interrogation, Timothy is arrested and charged with the murder of his mother, Susan Cabot. He demands to go home so that he can get his medication. By this time, animal control has come and collected the dogs, so the detectives are able to examine his room. Without any prompting, he leads them to the murder weapon and confesses to the crime. It's a complete 180. Oh, yeah. Completely. So, in the hamper in his room is a box of laundry powder. In the box is a barbell covered in blood and a scalpel. He tells investigators that he killed his mother and hid the weapons because he did not think anyone would believe the real story. So he thought they would believe the Latino ninja story. Masked Latino ninja. Masked Latino ninja warrior. Warrior. He was a warrior. But not the reason for why he kills his mother. Okay. We'll get to that. But the real story of what happened was just as fantastic as the story he told about the ninja attacker. His defense team would roll out this whole tale at the trial, and even though Timothy confessed, prosecution would not have a slam-dunk case. The defense would claim that Timothy was a human science experiment gone wrong, and that he killed his mother in self-defense. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, let me tell you about the science experiment. The experiment in question first began in 1958. Timothy was one of the many children to receive a treatment that was a possible cure for dwarfism. The National Institute of Health offered a supply of cadaver-derived pituitary injections to children diagnosed with growth hormone deficiency, GHD. The hormones had been extracted from the pituitary glands of around 80,000 dead bodies. About 700 children with GHD received this treatment. Timothy had begun receiving the injections when he was six years old, and the treatment medically added 16 inches to his height. However, this amazing cure had some tragic results. Due to a contaminated batch that supposedly had been infected, a large amount of test subjects developed, okay, this one's really hard, Crutchfeld-Jacob disease. The defense for Timothy stated that the parents of the children receiving these treatments knew the risks, but decided to proceed because, quote, otherwise they would have children that were dwarves. Yeah, that doesn't really seem like a fair trade-off. Yeah, that's kind of shitty. So <clears throat> the incubation period for CJD is up to 20 years, and there is no way to diagnose if Timothy had or would develop it. Um, parts of that disease is memory loss. Um, violent outburst behavior, psychosis, like basically your brain just kind of breaks down. Like it's 
It's so that's not so much a side effect, but just a fucking effect. Like you don't horrible, horrible disease. Yeah. Like this, I mean, there's a lot of other things that go along with it, but those were the points that they pinpointed in the trial that you know were his issue. Um, still, his lawyer stated his mother had bombarded his brain with chemicals for years with harvested genetic material from thousands of dead human bodies. When you're in a trial in 1980, some we're, we're like in 80. He like 88 now mm-hmm. when the trial was and you're talking about parents take because like stem cells none of that's a thing yet so right. you tell people that you know this mother subjected her child to these horrific things where they took things out of dead bodies and put it in human bodies how could you not expect this person to be crazy yeah you know like that that's their defense <laughs> and it works um so this coupled with the inappropriate secluded relationship and deplorable state of the rundown mansion was itself child abuse that Timothy endured for years. Then the scandalous accusation was made that Susan herself had been taking the hormones because she falsely believed that the injections would make her look younger. Sounds, Sounds like familiar? she got a little, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds like the wasp woman really stuck with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then the scan. Okay, I already said that. Sorry. The injections had helped deteriorate her mental health, and the defense painted her as a mentally depraved Hollywood starlet well past her prime. Yeah, that's a yeah. pretty... That's kind of hard to argue with. His tutor also testified, stating that Susan would frequently scream at Timothy for no reason, and that her poor mental health had taken a toll on the young boy. Timothy was deemed emotionally immature and disturbed by the age of 11. And this is 11 years, or actually, well, 11 years and yeah. when he murdered her. Cool. So in September of 1989, Timothy changed his plea from not guilty for reason of insanity to not guilty. This allowed him to take the stand and testify to what happened that night. He quickly broke into tears and recalled that his mother had started screaming at him calling for her mother and seemed to not have any idea who he was fearful of her. He tried to call paramedics at which point she attacked him with a barbell. Timothy had taken the barbell from her, but she attacked him again this time with a scalpel. I have no idea where she got a scalpel, but she had a scalpel. Timothy in self-defense had beaten her to death. Another thing the defense presented was proof of $1,500 monthly payments sent from the keeper of the king's purse that was said to resemble child support payments from King Hassan. (laughs) So they said that all these things that had happened to him, you know, his father is a king. He can't ever see. So he's a denied prince, I guess, whatever, Uh or a bastard prince. Um, His mom's been pumping him full of these drugs and hormones. She's been taking them. They're both going crazy by themselves in this old, dirty, dilapidated mansion. And it's, it was a huge house. Like it's, it's not a tiny mansion and they only really interact with each other. And then she loses it. He goes crazy and has this amount of rage to be able to beat her to death because of all these things that had piled up. This was their defense. And it works. On October 10th, 1989, Timothy was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter. 
He was sentenced to six years, but since he had served two and a half awaiting trial, he was only given three years probation. (laughs) The judge was then quoted as saying, there is no doubt in my mind that he loved his mother very much and meant no malicious intent. The house has since been demolished and a new stylish, more modern one built. Timothy fell out of the public eye at the end of the trial and was not seen nor heard from until an E-Mysteries episode in 2000, where he again told his side of the story for the first time since 1989. You can actually get on YouTube and watch that video. He died in 2003 at the age of 38, supposedly due to complications from Crutchfield Jacobs disease. And that is the story of the murder of the wasp woman. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah, that's a, that's a wild, strange ride. Isn't it though? Yeah. I mean, it's got everything. It's got government espionage. It's got princes and kings and Hollywood glamour and starlets and murder. Like, a woman who literally grew into a character that she right? played. Like, I don't know. I mean, like, maybe was she in like a part of psychosis where she maybe thought that was real or it could be real or. It's you see a lot of weirdness out of these former stars and whatnot that lock themselves up and become recluses and always hoard newspaper and matches and weird shit like that. And there's. I don't know. It seems that just being that public has a effect on people. And given the time frame we're talking about, yeah, I, I can totally see her thinking that all she needed to do was restore her youth and she'd be right back out there. But yeah, it's that's crazy. Yeah. Well, see my whole thing is, and I, I kind of wish I could get a hold of like the um, notes and dictation from that trial <laughs> because how did the defense explain away the linen sheet? If she was attacking him, how did he put a sheet on her face and then beat her in the head? It had to be one or two ways. A, she was sleeping. Like I've heard other, cause I did a lot of research on it and someone else pointed out where when they rolled her over, they noticed that there was a like sleeping pill, like, stuck to her ass like Mm -hmm. on the side on her hip like she had fallen asleep and laid on it and it had kind of like melted Mm -hmm. so that she was asleep when all this happened or he hit her the first couple times and then covered her face and then continued to beat her face in so how do you explain that away because one of the two ways had to happen because yeah and And then at that point, if you have enough thought to stop and put something over the face, which isn't that psychological analysis on that, that it's shame or remorse, one of the two. Yeah, shame or remorse, usually. So if you're going to stop and do that, then you have enough sense to know what it is that you're doing. Yeah, but that's not the direction that the defense was going in. They did a really good job of trying to paint him as this this poor defenseless kid that lived with this crazy woman and you know he went crazy and they didn't have to worry about questions like that because they probably never came up yeah that's true but yeah because they did such a good job i mean i'm not saying that she wasn't crazy and she was injecting herself with hormones that she should not have been doing but that's sounds like another defense attorney we know like they they just 
railroaded the victim and made the victim out to be the worst. It was like character assassination almost Yeah, to make you feel as much empathy as you could for Timothy. Yeah. For this. And plus, I mean, if you look at the pictures of him, which hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, we've either posted it on our website or we'll post a link so you can go look at it. He does his one, the one shot of him in his like, jail unit or prison uniform i guess whatever and you see his face and he look he looks like he can't be more than like 13 or 14 years old yeah so that also works he looked like a little kid yeah and if he was sitting there with those sad little eyes yeah you you're like oh he didn't mean to you kind of like i guess brush over the the violence of the crime like yeah I don't know. But, you know, you also have to, I mean, not making any excuses for him, but he lived for the rest of his life without any other incidents. True. So we can all sit here and speculate all we want to, but none of us really know what happened in that house. There's no telling, like, what he actually endured. So maybe maybe he did literally just snap. I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah, I just wonder, like... What movie was he picturing in his head when he came up with Latino <laughs> guy fighting. with curly hair, n- Japanese ninja warrior? Like, but see, even that story is something that like a kid would have concocted. Right? That's something that like an eight year old would have thrown out there. Like, and he was twenty two, so. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. He, I'm sure he was like emotionally. I mean, if you. A, you had all those medical experiments, which I can only imagine. I worked in endocrinology for a while and saw a lot of kids that had um, issues like that and um, either, you know, couldn't grow or were going too, growing too fast. So, and a lot of the medications, they, they are crazy. And, and as a parent, you'll try anything, you know, mm-hmm. but to be trapped with someone that just wants to fix you and you may not even think like you're broken, but they're just, they have to fix you for self image because people are going to talk and they were already saying there was something wrong with that boy. And you know, that but you're also trapped like as a child the entire time, because if he, I mean, it doesn't sound like he had the mental capabilities ever in his life of a, the age that he was. And you know, if he had never, he hadn't even made it at that point to where his frontal lobe was completely mm-hmm. cooked. So he was more than likely still a child. And children can be very, very violent at times. So it's yeah. highly possible that he just couldn't take it and uh, yeah. went off the deep end. Yeah, he was young when he died. He was in his 30s. Yeah. So I don't know. All right. So. That's the episode. That's that's hands down like one of my favorite murder stories. I mean, no murder story should be great, but there's just you almost couldn't make that up. Yeah, like that alone is a great fucking movie. Like it's it's just it's got everything. It's got everything, and then it's got a satisfying ending. Like ups and downs, twists, turns, all of that. But. Okay, great. Well, thank you for listening. Um, please go to our website, uh, mystifiedpod.com. Uh, we are on 
where are we at now? We're on iTunes. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on a bunch of different sites. Go somewhere, find us, rate us, leave us a review, only if it's good. Um, But yeah, you got anything else? No, that's it. Okay, great. Until next time, bye. Mystified. Podcast.